Welcome to the Our Safe Harbor Church podcast. Here you can listen to our Sunday sermon, Monday morning message, and midweek Bible study. We hope you will consider subscribing, sharing, leaving a review, but please be sure to check out our website at www.OurSafeHarbor.com to learn more about us and find ways to get involved. Our Safe Harbor Church, we are with you wherever you are. church. And thank you, Libby, for that reading. That actually, Deuteronomy 6 is going to be very central to some of the things we have to cover in this series, the community of God. Now, these things do go in a certain pattern, and they build on each other. So if you've not had a chance to listen to last week, make sure you do, so that we can lay this foundation one one part at a time, and we can all get there together. First, um, we're aware it's super cold in the United States. Uh, the Canadians are up there going, Pfft. but in the, in the United States, uh, this is very, very cold. So please take care of yourself. And we know that we'll have more viewers because you can't get to your normal places. So welcome. We are always happy to have you. Uh, please enjoy the ride the best that you can. Tomorrow, uh, we will release our videos as usual. I failed to mention, however, when I recorded the video for tomorrow, that in America, it's also Martin Luther King Jr. Day. No slight was intended. Fact is, uh, we record these things months in advance, and that one hit. But we do understand that in America, a lot of people will be off and will be celebrating the life and teachings of uh, Martin Luther King Jr., and we want to recognize that. Uh, It was also 10 years ago today that I woke up in the morning spoke in Dallas, uh, Dallas, Fort Worth, big uh, youth gathering, and then got in my truck and drove to Tennessee, uh, moving here. So I've been here for 10 years now and have wreaked havoc uh, everywhere I've gone, but the Tennesseans have been very, very kind to us. We're really going to talk a lot today about holding hands, and you don't really know why I'm talking about that yet, but it'll become important. And it will be more important as we go through this journey together. So hang in there. Also hang in there if you hate history. Because there's going to be history here. But you might think, well, what do I care about kings and emperors and like? We're going to try to make it interesting. For one, I know that history can be fascinating or boring. And it's really up to the teacher. So um, I'm going to do my best on it. It's more of a story that I want to tell. But the fact is this. We need to know what we're talking about today, we need to understand that history if the church is going to be here for our grands and for their children. That hard reset that we had during COVID and that we've had during recent wars and we've had during recent political division worldwide has shrunk attendance and has made the numbers of people who say they have no religion swell and grow dramatically. So, We're on a journey. We started last week. I'm going to trust that you either you heard or you will hear and you'll catch up. This is about the future of faith. Jesus asked. He asked his apostles, when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on earth? I find that to be a fascinating question to be coming from the lips of Jesus. So we probably should pay attention. If we flash forward from the time of the apostles, to 200 AD, 
we find the faith was still growing. There were none of the 3,000 baptisms here, 5,000 baptisms there. There was none of that going on during the time of the apostles and after them up into the twos and three hundreds. It grew slowly. The, the faith had taken root. But where it had taken root was almost without exception where there were large quantities of Jewish people who had become Christians and who were, if you remember, the prepared community. For well over a thousand years, you could push it to 1,500 or more, they had been prepared. They had the same songs, same stories, same worship. They understood, they even shared the same names they called each other. They were ready for the Messiah. And when he came, thousands, thousands and thousands turned to him. But when apostles went out into the world, they went into a series of unprepared communities. And therefore, they didn't have instant reactions that were positive. They had some that were very negative. But where the Jewish people went in the diaspora is what it's called. Jerusalem fell in 70 AD. The Romans had had enough and they decided just to come against Jerusalem in great brutality. And they drove the Jews out that they did not kill. And those Jews spread and that's called a diaspora all over the known world at the time. And even to this day until 1947 or so, the Jews were given no right to be in their own homeland and their own nation. The Jewish people have always lived in that region, but they've also were out in Spain, Russia, and yes, even down into Africa, Ethiopia, and beyond. The Roman Empire was not always kind to the Christians, shall we say, but it, it would be a myth to say that they always were antagonistic. Most Roman emperors couldn't have cared less in this period because the Jews were an approved worship, uh, approved religion. And to them, they couldn't tell the difference between Christians and Jews. And to be honest, there were a whole lot of mixture there. A lot of Jews were Christians. In fact, that's where faith took root. Others were highly antagonistic toward it. And Roman emperors, I mean, they, they, you, they changed more than light bulbs. They were constantly being changed. And they were terrified of somebody else taking over their place. So they got to the point where I mean, the most dangerous place to be was related to a Roman emperor. Because they killed their mothers, their fathers, their sons, their daughters. They killed their friends. They killed, I mean, and yes, they killed their friends. Uh, they were insane, a lot of them, uh, due to infections, lead poisoning, um, STDs and the like. We can now go back and look at their behavior and go, oh yeah, we know what caused that. Well, Christians were right in the middle of all of this. And therefore, whenever the emperors wanted a target, they would go after the Jews, or they'd go after the Christians, or they'd go after the Jewish Christians, because they couldn't tell the difference between them. They just went for them. Give the people an enemy. And leaders know this. Watch, be very careful about this. Very careful. Your leaders, political leaders, and sometimes religious leaders, will try to give you an enemy. Because if they can, then you are going to follow that leader to protect yourself from those enemies, the others, those outside the gates. And there will be a, a scapegoat, 
And you can go and you can, you can feel free to not love and even actually hate the scapegoat because your leaders have told you they're a danger to you and to your children. And I, if you're right now remembering political statements and tweet, tweets, you're probably on track. From its earliest days, the story of Jesus had worked its way, though, slowly into places you would not have expected it, including to the homes of the rich and powerful, as well as the homes of the poor. Paul said in Philippians chapter 4, verse 22, that those from Caesar's household salute you. Yeah, it had even made it up into the household of Caesar. But Paul was not an idiot. He, he wasn't going to say, Sarah, John, and Ralph in Caesar's household salute you, because that would be the quickest way to get them killed. But he was just saying, it's spreading it's getting there. It was quite a surprise to find faith in the family of the emperor. But that's the only way the gospel could spread. Was slowly filling cracks that people didn't know existed. After several emperors had tried to extinguish Christianity. And many of the stories of those are, are famous, well-known. We're not going to go through all of that. Uh, I do have to also tell you that many of those stories never took place, but they're so cool that preachers use the illustrations a lot. The fact is, a lot of them tried to extinguish Christ, uh, Christianity, but then we come to Constantine. And there is another story that Constantine you know, became a Christian when he saw a cross in the sky. And like, all of those things are made up later. Constantine, when he made Christianity legal, he did not start by making it the religion of the empire. He just made it legal. That, he didn't become a Christian. He waited until the last possible moment uh, to, uh, to convert because he didn't really have any interest in Christianity. He just wanted to use it. Here was a group of people in his empire that didn't seem to go away. No matter how many times you put them in a coliseum, killed them, took away their jobs, destroyed their cities, they didn't seem to be defeated. So the best thing to do then, if you can't get rid of it, is to take control of it. And that's what he did. For a long time before Constantine, Christianity spread had kind of stagnated, but it was still growing. It was in North Africa. It was down into East Africa. It may have made it all the way to the modern nation of India. There is good reason to believe that the Apostle Thomas made it to Goa in India. And the people there have, since that time, spoken of it. There are some ancient churches in Goa, and it's fascinating. I'll let you look that up. It's not really our story today. But again, that's the only way it was spreading. Philip and his daughters went into what is today the nation of Georgia. Not Atlanta, the one over there. Well, Christianity was a tiny minority, but a persistent one. So, enter the 300s AD, Constantine, known as Constantine the Great, came to power in 308, uh, I'm sorry, 306 uh, AD and ruled for 31 years. You don't need to know that. It will not be on the test. But his mother, you might want to know his mother, Helena, or sometimes pronounced Helena, she was a Christian and devout. We have no solid history on how that happened, but we do have several people writing books very insistently that they know how, and they all contradict each other. So we've got that going for us. She pushed her son, be a good boy, 
and look upon the Christians as a plus and not an enemy. So he made it legal and then said, it needs to be organized. You see, before then, Christianity was a loose confederation of people who followed Jesus and went about doing good. Well, can't have that. It needs to be more organized than this. And by the way, if you're thinking, that's silly, churches do the same thing. They'll find somebody doing something good and they'll go, well, well wait, now you needed to run that up to the elders and we needed to have a couple deacons over here and we, we need to control. No, no, no. That's just humanity wanting to grab things. Was, was there division among Christians? Not so much. Were they all teaching the same thing? Not so much. There was variety. Now they were all very much in agreement that Jesus Christ was the Messiah, the Son of God. That was, and that we were to emulate his life, that this world is not our home and that his kingdom is not of this earth. They were right all on that, but they would have divisions about um, the Trinity or they would have divisions about baptism even because some already, I mean, within the end of the apostles' lifetime, were already baptizing people by, if they were sick on a bed and they couldn't put them under a water, they'd hit them with buckets of water at the same time. Or, or, they, or then they started arguing about, do we really need all those buckets? I mean, they had differences of opinion, but they were united around Christ. Some of them disagreed strongly with each other. Gregory of Nyssa, one of my heroes, uh, wouldn't have agreed with Clement of Rome or the writer um, of the Didache, uh, which was a, a document about how to organize a church and the rules. Really rough. It fell on the mean side of conservative. And there's nothing wrong with being a conservative, but you don't have to be the mean side. There's a mean side on the left as well. We got to all admit that. Do we not? Come on. Um, Constantine called the leaders of the churches together and said, you got to agree. You got to nail it down. We just talked about this on a Christmas Eve service. One of the stories, it probably didn't happen, but I hope it did just because it's cool. Is that Arius, who believed that Jesus was created and not co-eternal with God for all, all time. So not a, not a Trinitarian. He uh, was called on the carpet by St. Nicholas Yes, he of December 25th fame later. And they got into such an argument that St. Nicholas punched him out. And the idea that Santa Claus punched out a heretic is just, you got to love the story. Um, even if I don't think you could call Arius a heretic and it probably didn't happen. These are stories that I'm just asking God, just could you help us find something that says it's true. He hasn't yet. But here's where... The scientist part of me wants to throw a red flag on the field. Because Constantine called the leaders of the church together and told them establish the basics of the faith and the organization of the faith. Problem is, there's a sample size issue. Uh, again, science will look at this and say, who determined who the leaders were? Who among leaders, true leaders, would have had the funds and the freedom to get to Nicaea. Who among them would have um, trusted Constantine? You know, because when a Roman Empire goes, hey guys, I like you now. Want to come for lunch? <sighs> there are probably some hesitation. Regardless, the church was organized and those who did not agree with the final decisions of Nicaea and other councils were, were basically kicked out. And so the, the diversity of the church was hurt, but now division is there. 
Because are you with us or are you not? By the way, I can say the Nicene Creed and agree with every word in it. I can say the Apostles' Creed and say every word of it. That's not the issue. The issue is they started holding hands with the government and letting the government decide who's in or out. They started, for every good reason, they held the hands of the government and it destroyed the movement of faith. I'm going to prove that to you in just a bit. They finally decided on the books of scripture, although that still varied up until really the Reformation. And then evangelism died because now evangelism was a matter of power and the extension of the power of the state. If you were Roman, because later he did make it an official religion, um, that didn't last very long, but he did. Now it was a matter of not the Sermon on the Mount, not the back half of Matthew 25. It wasn't about just copying Jesus and going about doing good, letting him be the ruler of the kingdom of your world, your life. Now it was a mirror image of the power of Rome with crosses. And so crosses went out in front of the soldiers. Priests blessed the soldiers before they conquered the pagans. It's, then they would force the pagans to all be baptized and call that conversion, which it most certainly was not. By the way, those people who went along and believed all of this and did all of this, I believe they are saved. I don't believe that their faith will be returned to them invalid because they didn't know what they didn't know. They couldn't know. They didn't have a printed Bible. And the people who led them were frequently illiterate. Illiteracy was a, just a serious problem among priests and bishops all the way up through the 1600s. And so they didn't know what to teach them. And I'm sure that when you turn to God, God takes whatever widow's mites or loaves and fishes you've got and works with them. But now is the Roman way of conversion. What was a Roman way? Here we go. You ready? Because this is what killed evangelism for over a thousand years in most of Europe. You were to look upon the local population as degenerate, superstitious, and in need to be civilized. Right now they are barbarian. And these terms were used. These All the time these terms were used. They need to be civilized to the point of being able to listen to and respond appropriately to the word of the church. The church was in charge, but they needed to be civilized. In North America, you can look up the history of these schools where they took Native Americans from their families and forcibly put their children into schools. Canada and the United States to civilize them, to stop them speaking their barbaric natural language and to beat their culture out of them. And they did. It was genocide in a different word. Trying to destroy it all because you had the power. You know, we could do all this to you. Uh, by the way, during the Inquisition, they were allowed to kill you, take your land and everything. They just weren't allowed to spill blood. So they crushed you with rocks, pulled you on the rack and, and burned you. And that was okay because God thought that was cool. According, see what happens? You hold hands with the state. You have power from the state to impose your will. 
And that's what they did. And they did that for a very long time. You had to adopt your um, Roman customs, the Roman way. By the way, the same thing happened later in Byzantium, which would later be named Constantinople, which is now named Istanbul, just because people love to make things hard. No mission growth. By the end of the third century, are you ready to hear this? And I'm, I'm about to say something absolute. There were no, and no historian can say nay to this, there were no records of organized missions or new churches among the Celts, the Goths, the Visigoths, the Vandals, the Franks, the Frisians, the Huns, the Vikings. You see, the Roman church assumed that reaching these barbarians was impossible because a population had to be literate and rational enough to understand Christianity and then become cultured and civilized, and this is a big one, submissive, bowing to the church if they understood what the priests were saying. Just by the way, this is not an idea that's gone away. Many churches, not just Roman churches, and we're not picking on Catholics today, it's just they were the only shop in town for a long time. We are told that modern cultures just don't want to hear about Jesus anymore. Have you heard that? I've heard that all my life. I've heard preachers say, well... The reason our evangelism's not working is because people just don't want to hear about Jesus. And I'm going, I don't, what's your sample size there? And what's your method? And, and of course, when you're eight years old, you're not allowed to ask these things. You're not allowed to ask when you're 18 or 28 either. Why do you think that our local people, wherever you live, Tanzania, Canada, uh, um, if you're in uh, Singapore, if you're in Ohio, or if you're in Tennessee, What makes you think that they're not open to Jesus? Maybe they're not open to your church and its systems and its worship style. But they might be open to Jesus if they met him. So they, what did the churches do? They spent all of their time and all of their budget and all of their efforts on building big edifices so that when you were properly prepared and submissive, you could go there to see Jesus. And it killed evangelism. By the way, I'm using the word barbarian, which is the proper term. To a Roman, anyone who did not act like a Roman was a barbarian. Because people have always had this idea that they are the standard. I always find it wonderful when people talk to me about you know, what God wants in his politics. And I'll, I'll say, well, what are your politics? And they tell me, and they align exactly with what God wanted. Except we know they got it backwards. They're making God align with them. Left and right. On the left, they abandoned the the principles of charity and benevolence and instead give that to the state and vote for more power to come from the state to impose those things. And then from the right, they get that, well, it's too hard teaching people about morality and grace and kindness and love, so let's just impose the will from above. And they both grab hands with the government and it kills evangelism. You know that. How many churches were hurt during COVID when people took sides? Almost all of them. We got to be careful. You see, the Romans said, if you didn't look like us, wear our clothes, have our traditions, and which included a lack of emotionalism, except I'll get to that, then you were uncivilized. You had to come and sit quietly and do what the priest told you to do 
or you were uncivilized. The emotionalism could come in. If you were a Dominican or the like, they often used pain uh, to whip themselves into a frenzy, thinking that would make God give them more favor. That doesn't come from Scripture. But back then, for a thousand years, accepting Christ meant submitting to the church in all things and keeping your behavior and your emotions in check. That's, that's stuck with us in the West, by the way. It really has. I can remember when a, a young man stood up, and he, was already, he already had a strike against him because he had longer hair that actually touched a bit of his ears. Uh, and he started crying softly as he led a prayer. And my dad was so disgusted, uh, a minister and, and a preacher there, that dad... <sighs> It's just all of a sudden, I mean, I'm going, you know, the only reason my dad's not up there yanking him off is because you're, you're not allowed to open your eyes during a prayer. I heard there's a rule. You know, you, you, it, you're, it's a it's game of Marco Polo with the heretics right then. So that, and, and once again, these things had to stay inside or I would not be with you today. I hope you understand how much this is about us. We need to skip forward a bit, but not much. Just about 100 years. And move our focus to Ireland. And remember, I'm not doing this because you know, half Irish. No, no, I'm, I'm half pagan too. Uh, and you, and by the way, half the people, we'll, we'll just move on. This is historic. The historical reality is that Europe went dark. The Rus came from the north. Later, the na- a nation of Russia is named after them. They were part of the Vikings, the Scandinavian invasions. There was rape, pillage, fire everywhere, except in part, most of Ireland, it hadn't hit yet. 200 years now, the church had made zero new missions, nothing, because it was a, it was a reflection of the power of the state. It wasn't what God had intended. The only conversions were done by military might. And I hope you understand that those aren't real conversions. Although we, I believe God gives grace to all. Then we have St. Patrick come along. Now, we won't go into the story of St. Patrick at this point. But if you'd like to, maybe I'll do a Monday morning message on that. Uh, suffice to now to, uh, to say he was almost certainly the son of a Roman officer or patrician of some sort. And a British mother. And by British back then, that meant Welsh. It's complicated. The British people by that time had basically been shoved into what we now call Wales. The rest were Anglos, Saxons, Picts, and the like. So British and Roman, not uncommon at all at that time in the 400s. He had been, uh, Patrick had been kidnapped by Irish pirates, uh, held there for years, made a couple escape attempts, finally got back. And then once he got back to, uh, to Britain, he determined he would go back to Ireland to take the name of Jesus with him. And so he did. Also note at this time that Rome was considered a power center authority for the church, but it didn't have an iron hold on churches this far out. Celtic Christianity was very different than what you saw in Rome. You can still get, still get like, it's rare, you can get a master's and doctorates in Celtic Christianity. And I would recommend you look it up and read a few of their bits. I've got them in Gaelic and I've got them in, in English and I've got them in Latin, which is completely useless to me. So I just have them because owning books makes me powerful. Celtic Christianity was very different 
from Rome. And that's a good thing because it was among the Celts that the faith began to grow again. Patrick knew the people of Ireland. And that's, uh, there's no substitute for knowing and loving the people you want to reach with the gospel. Friendship. Kindness. Sadly, Christians are often isolated from those with whom they disagree. And social media has not made that any better. Social media war right now between leftist and um, you know, progressive left. I want to say I don't, progressivism. I have no problem with leftism and conservatism on Twitter. The Christians are going and you better believe Satan's enjoying that. They both want their government to jump up and do Christianity for them. Then it's sad. There's a truth that people won't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And that's where the Irish Christians worked. Here's how they did it. Patrick knew Ireland and he assembled a team upon arrival at a tribal settlement. Patrick would engage people in general conversations to gauge how ready they were to accept strangers and friendship. If they weren't ready to receive, which was usually the case, they would set up a mission right in the middle of the hamlet or village. And what was that mission? Did they build a church? No, 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 not at all. They would be looking around. What do they need? Do they need help with the fields? Do they need help with midwives? Do they need help to work with the sick, to perform weddings and funerals, to fish and work among the people? And they did that working for months and years just loving on the people, not raising up crosses and standards. And Patrick never wore those huge robes and such you see in the paintings. That wasn't Celtic Christianity. They would work with them, getting to know them. And this is important. When anyone showed any interest in being a part of their community, because they liked what they were doing, there was wisdom there, there was friendship there, there was grace there, people shared their food there. They were welcomed in and, and said, all right, you can work alongside of us. And they did. If they had questions, they were answered. They made sure that everybody felt loved and received and seen. They didn't use a, that phraseology, but that's how we would say it today. And the word that I, the phrase that I got when I was studying Celtic Christianity, I have no degrees in it. I just have read the books and talked to the professors. People belonged before they believed. They didn't even know they belonged to a church. They knew this, these are our people though. In this way, you ready? In 28 years, 700 churches were established. Not just in Ireland, but also in Europe. Because they took these ideas with them. The slave trade was shut down in Ireland. The first in Europe, and as far as we can determine, the first in the world to condemn slavery and stop it was in the late 400s, 482, around there, in Ireland. It, to ex explain the impact of this, Dublin was a Viking slave trading center. That's how massive a change occurred in one generation. Other forms of murder and intertribal warfare were greatly lessened. Ireland was full of kings, ris, as we would say in, in the Gaelic, and high kings, the Ardri. 
by the way, the reed became reeve in England, and in America, the highest, um, highest law enforcement in the shire is a reeve, but we pronounce it sheriff. So these terms have still been used. And he, uh, they, they stopped the intertribal warfares. All Patrick has done, and here we go, all we can do in an age that looks like a lot, a lot like the one that confronted the apostles and Patrick is to become a paraclete, a one who draws alongside, who walks with you, shares your burden, works with you, and loves you, purely loves you. And the results were spectacular. And by the way, just, I'll say this in passing, just as the Pharisees were criticizing Jesus for fraternizing with the sinner people, Patrick was criticized for doing the same. He had, uh, Rome was going to excommunicate him. The charges were, he wasn't building church buildings. They were actually worshiping out in the air. What were they thinking? They did not establish clergy. They worshiped wherever they were, rather than in ritually cleansed and sanctified spaces. Rather than speaking of the acts of worship and penance, which they did not do, they spoke of God and what he was doing in their lives. Transcendence, not ritual. And because of that, they were going to disfellowship him. You see, the Roman world wanted, the Roman church wanted to escape the world and its pollutions. Churches, what have we been told to do? Escape the world and its pollutions. And yet both times that people in the Bible talked to God about leaving the planet, they both said, we're, we're not doing that. Jesus said, I pray for you in a world, not that you, you know, those I'm leaving behind, not that you take them out of the world, but you protect them in it. Paul said, he would like to go up to heaven, but we will, not, we will be in the world, but not of the world. And learn to walk right among the pagans on Mars Hill in eighth in Athens, with no problem at all, except he got criticism from church people. Other churches want to control the world. They want to get their people in high office. They want to be in charge of the world and get those laws made, and that'll make people Christian. We all know it doesn't. We all know it doesn't. Others want to hold hands with the world, even at the cost of compromising their faith. Well, if the world says that all of these things about our sexuality are true, then we'd better say that too. What? Are we light? Or are we just joiners? You see, none of those have worked. None of the churches that have gone left or right are growing. They're just not. Only entering this world with love and understanding and a willingness to engage will spread the faith. And I'm going to really hit this in two weeks. Uh, but for right now, you need to understand something. We are not doing good to them so that one day we can baptize them. We are not forming friendship with them so that one day they'll go to our church. We are doing good to them and we are loving them because they are made in the image of God. And we as Christ ambassadors are called to love them. Evangelism happens when you love people for no other reason than that you love people. That's it. Don't come to me with a big program of how we can use this to save the world. No, we already know how to do that. We just need to do that. Love 
one another. And it will keep this alive for generations to come. I've had people say, but what do I do about my child or my parent or who are enmeshed in a sin? And I said, you got to love them. And you got to love them so much that when a crisis hits their life and they need to run, they run to you, not away from you. I have seen too many churches and looked around and going, I can understand why this community is not bursting through these doors. Because do you really want to spend eternity with people like this? And I know that's judgmental and harsh. Hey, here's a clue. I'm as messed up as you are. So is your world. Loving one another seems to be the best plan. It's the only one that has worked for the last 1,800 years. So, more next week. I hope that, um, hope that this setup helps you. We'll sing a song. We'll move on. But you know your job. Love one another. Oh, hey, if you're on your own and you're broken, maybe there's been some mental illness in your life. Maybe there's been some hurt to you in your life. You may be thinking, well, how do I? We'll talk more about that in weeks to come. There's no rush. You're saved now. You're loved now. But we'll talk about what you can do too.